where they are. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 9. Mark, chapter 9, as we continue to progress through this book, exposing the passages and the verses and the truths one by one. We're going to be talking again today. And Jesus, he saves us to change us. You know, when I came to Christ 40 years ago, this, this coming October, I had been in church my whole life, but I had never realized that when I'm saved, I'm saved to be changed. And it never did change me until I became a Christian 40 years ago. And I finally realized that God saves me to change my heart and for his kingdom. And I learned quickly, though, that I couldn't change myself. I couldn't do it in my own strength or my own power or my own intestinal fortitude. I had to accept that I was different now and then let Jesus show me how to live life his way. So as time marches in the book of Mark, as we're going through this, as time marches closer to Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus is now increasing the number of times he gets along with his disciples to teach them the things that they're going to need following his crucifixion, following his resurrection, and following his ascension. And so Jesus is using some private time in this passage today and some opportunities that the disciples present him with. It's funny how many times life lessons come by our own buffoonery, I call it, <laughs> mistakes, our own false judgments and wrong opinions. So Jesus uses that here. So let me read this passage to you, and then we'll, we'll begin to look, look at it close. Mark chapter 9, starting with verse 30. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee. But he did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, because on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us, and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these opportunities that we see you using to train these apostles. Jesus, your, your truth permeates all of this, these encounters. And it starts with the fact that you are declaring the gospel of yourself, the gospel that you have brought, the good news that you're going to die for our sins. May it speak to our hearts this morning and we apply it to our life. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Jesus takes several opportunities here, as you can see, to teach his disciples how much their lives will change because of the gospel, because of his sacrifice. That's what, they're, that's what he's talking about. So Jesus changes the lives of those who believe in him for salvation, and he changes them in a very positive ways, but it's also very uh, different from the world, as we should say. So what changes does Jesus make by his salvation? Well, he kind of reprograms them, and he reprograms us in three ways in this, in this passage. And he, this, will, this will change his followers, both then and today. First, the gospel involves dying, which sounds so common to us, but so weird to them. Let's look at these verses again. Verses 30 through 32. Then they left the place that made their, and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. So, Jesus and the twelve, they leave the place where they, he cast out the demon out of the, the boy that the disciples could not cast out of. They've left that place. They're walking through Galilee. And Jesus brings up the subject, <laughs> brings up the subject again of his death. And I know the disciples, the twelve, are going, why does he keep talking about this? We don't want to hear this noise. This is not a happy thought to them. But he brings it up again. He mentions how he will be delivered to men to be killed. And, and it's not like it's, it says betrayed in this one. Yes, he will be betrayed, and we know that Judas does that. But we also need to know that our Bible teaches us that God delivered Jesus to these men. God delivered him up for our salvation. God put him here for our salvation. And Jesus obeyed, which is even greater. He voluntarily, actively obeyed what God had put him here to do. See, the gospel that saves is always going to involve Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But he also mentions here that he's going to rise again. He's going to rise after he's killed. Now that's another whole foreign concept to them. And this time he gives them a timeline, three days. And then he says, he's telling them again the gospel that we believe. This is the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the sins of humanity. That is the gospel in its purest form, in its essence. Now, follow me a little bit here as we talk about this plan is from God, and it existed since eternity past. Okay, it was not a, oh, well, I got I to do something. Adam and Eve blew it in the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> it's not that way. He had planned this from the beginning. He had planned this to save humanity, and Jesus is the way. Now, we have to understand something, that God is a holy God, which means he is perfect, which means he cannot tolerate error. He cannot tolerate sin. He cannot tolerate willful disobedience. And he told us, <laughs> he told us if we sin, we will die. He told us that. He told Adam and Eve that from the very beginning. And he kept his word. We will die physically now, but also spiritually. And see, you wouldn't, you wouldn't trust a judge that says, You're, I'm going to give you this sentence and then didn't. And most of us are pretty mad when judges don't hold up justice. But God does because he's a righteous judge. So God, in his infinite grace, said to prevent all of humanity, all of humanity from dying an eternal spiritual death, God substituted Jesus. He said, I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send my son 
to cover the sins of humanity. He pays the death sentence that's on us. That's what he came to do. And we accept that payment by faith, faith in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is telling the disciples here this master plan of redemption, this plan that has been going on as far as humans can concern from Genesis chapter 3. But God had it planned long before that ever happened. But this plan is foreign to the disciples. They don't grasp it. Remember I talked a few weeks ago that everything the disciples and the Jews taught about their Messiah that was coming, the Messiah that is prophesied in the Old Testament, was about a king like David who was going to come and conquer enemies, defeat them, destroy them, and run them off. So they're looking for somebody coming in to do away with Rome right here in this particular case. So they have no concept of a Messiah that dies. A Messiah that dies is not a Messiah in their minds. That's, that's ingrained in them. Even if he's resurrected, he's not the Messiah they're used to. He's not the Messiah they've got in their mind. They can't fathom it. And then they're so mortified by this whole concept, they don't even ask Jesus about it. They're like, ah, oh, we're not going to talk about this. I don't want to bring this up. Here he is again talking about his death. I don't, I don't even want to ask him about it. I think maybe they didn't bring it up because after Peter got rebuked so harshly back in chapter 8 about telling Jesus that's not going to happen, they're like, I don't want to get rebuked like that. That was not any fun. They kind of kept quiet. <laughs> Keep your head down. Don't get, don't, get, don't get it blown off. But they also, I think, like we do as humans, we avoid the hard topics. We avoid the difficult subjects. We avoid the things that say, that's depressing, that, that make us sad. And I think... They also kind of might be avoiding what Jesus taught in, in Mark 8, 31 through 38 about the life of a disciple is not roses and rainbows in this world. It will be in the other, but it's, it's, it's self-denial. It's self-sacrifice. It's denying yourself and taking up your cross and following you. But nonetheless, Jesus is teaching them the gospel. He teaches them this is the gospel of the Messiah that I will die, I will be buried, and in three days I will rise again. So that's what he's teaching. And it is, it is the path. It is the only path to the resurrection that the Jews believed in and that we believe in. It's the only way to that resurrection and that eternal life in heaven that we all want. This is the gospel that saves them. This is the gospel that saves us. And changes us who believe in it. You know, there's lots of religions out there. Lots and lots of religions. Even, even anti-religious people or non-religious people are really religious about something. There's a lot of religions out there and they tell humanity how to behave to, to eventually capture eternal bliss in some form or fashion. They're always telling you in some form, some ritual, some Thing you need to do, you need to do to make yourself right with whoever your God is, to make yourself worthy to be in the next life, to make yourself good enough. But there's nothing out there that does that. The only thing that does is a perfect, holy, righteous sacrifice. And that's the gospel. The gospel tells us, the gospel tells us to trust in a man who willingly died for our sins, who willingly went to the cross put his hands out and was nailed to it to pay for our sins. That's what the gospel tells us to trust in. To trust in him, to believe in him, and to believe that he rose on the third day 
so that we know our sins are forgiven. We know that the sacrifice pleased God. It assuaged his wrath, as the Bible teaches us. See, God saves us, not we save us. And that's the difference between Christianity and other religions. God came down to us to save us. Peter tells the Jews this in Acts chapter 4, that him and John have had the pleasure and the privilege of healing a crippled man that's set by the temple gate for many years. And so they've called them into court to challenge them as to why they did that. And, and what are, why are they spreading these, these, these truths about the gospel? Well, here's what Peter responds. Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by the way, whom God raised from the dead, by the way, by him this man is standing before you. Well, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I mean, Peter is now preaching what he was being taught in this passage we read this morning and that we're looking at. Have you been saved by this gospel? Have you been saved by this gospel? Do you believe, do you trust that this Jesus was killed, buried, and rose alive? I mean, that's, that's the starting point of all conversations about eternity. And if you believe this, if you believe this gospel, what Jesus is telling them, you're saved. You're born again, as we call it. Your sins are taken care of. You have eternal life with God, guaranteed. You don't have to do necessarily anything else. But if you've believed this gospel, you're changed as well. You're changed. What kind of change, you ask? You see others with a new perspective. You see others in a new light. You wonder, first of all, are they lost or saved? You should be wondering that and then pursuing that, asking them, talking to them. Do they know Jesus Christ? Do they know that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection saves them? The other thing that changes about you is you want to live your life better than before. Not better and just gooder to people around you, but better in the way that, that God says. God's ways are much better than man's ways. That you follow what Jesus said. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Obedience becomes a priority in your life. Not to earn salvation, but to please the one who did save you. That's what, it, that's what obedience is about. It's not drudgery. It's not a, a requirement to be saved. It's to please those who saved, please the one who saved you. It's out of gratitude. Now, others may teach a different gospel. Others may teach a different way about how to get to heaven, how to have eternal life. And they'll probably add some things. I mean, all of Paul's letters in the New Testament are written to churches. Most of them are written to, to countermand that because there are people out there teaching you, you've got to be circumcised and you've got to do all these Jewish things. There's nothing else you have to do. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for sin covers you. And that's where the gospel begins and ends. He is the one you put your faith in, not yourself. He is the one you put your faith in. 
This is the gospel that saves. Thus is, is the gospel that changes us. So Jesus tells them that gospel here. And what that entails, which is his death, burial, and resurrection. And now he talks to them how it will change their attitudes. So he gets some opportunities now. This is, and these are great. First of all, servers are the greatest. So verses 33 through 37, here's his first opportunity to teach them a little bit more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. Because on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, only but him who sent me. That's a great verse. And the disciples just provided a teaching moment for Jesus. So what, argument, what an argument to have. <laughs> Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's probably walking ahead of them, you know, thinking about the crucifixion, thinking about posturing himself to get to Jerusalem at the right time and all that. He's thinking about all of that. And here they are behind him arguing. arguing about status why are they arguing about status well let's learn a little bit about their culture of that day and i think it's still in our culture too but we just don't talk about it as much position rank hierarchy status they were very 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 important to the jewish culture but they were also very 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 important to the greek and roman the gentile culture as well it permeated all of they, that they do. Everything in their life was driven by their status, which sometimes today even ours is. And their perceived ranking among everybody, their perceived ranking in the, in the community that they were in determined a lot of things. It determined their vocations, what they could do for a living. It determined that. They didn't get to necessarily choose. It would determine who they married. It would determine the amount of income they got paid. It would determine where they could live in the city or in the country even. And it also would determine who they could socially interact with, who they could actually come up and have a conversation with. That's how important their rankings were. Now, this doesn't justify the, the argument that the disciples were having, but it was important to their worldly minds, which is the whole point of the gospel, is to change our worldly mind into a heavenly mind. But it was important. They would argue about it, and, but they could not understand why Jesus had a problem with it. So Jesus corrects their thinking. He sits down, which is what a rabbi, a Jewish teacher, does when he's going to teach his students. He sits down and he calls his students to him. And he's going to teach them. He looks them in the eye at eye level to get the point across. And this is what he says. Verse 35, the one we're memorizing this month. He called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. I mean, just let that hang in the air right there. All the disciples are kind of like going, What? First is last. Great is servant. What? That's not what we grew up on. That's not what we heard. That's not what we've been taught. 
What a shift in their honor-shame culture that they're having right now. Jesus is the first by taking position as the last. He was last so that he could be first. He is the greatest. Jesus is the greatest because he was servant of all humanity for dying for their sins. And he shows the disciples here how their lives will be different in the kingdom that he's proclaiming. I mean, that's what he's been doing since Mark chapter 1. I'm going through and preaching. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe. And then he takes and gives them a visible parable. Basically, a sermon illustration after that. He takes a child and puts him in, brings him into the, the child into the midst of the twelve. They're all sitting there privately, huddled around Jesus. And he says, brings, brings in this child and holds him in his arms. And then he says this, whoever welcomes a child in the name of Jesus, in my name, welcomes me. Whoever welcomes a child in Jesus' name welcomes Jesus. Well, we don't really understand this sometimes because we're like, why a child? Well, I'm glad you asked that because it's not because they are innocent. It's not because they're cute, although they are. It's not because they're the trusting dependent souls that they are on us as parents and grandparents. That's not the reason why. Children were the lowest rung on the social ladder of the day. Children had no position. They had no rank. They had firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn, but they didn't have any social standing. They were the lowest of low. Children had no position. They had no rank. So according to Jesus, welcoming Receiving, serving a child makes you great. Now, everybody wants to volunteer for the children's ministry, right? Right? <laughs> that's not what Jesus, Jesus is, he's definitely pro-children's ministry, but that's not what he's trying to get across to you right now. <clears throat> In Jesus' name, welcoming and receiving and serving a child makes you the greatest. Lowering yourself to the level of serving a child who has no standing, who has no way to help your situation, was Jesus' point of being great, being first, because it was the last position. Serving the child in Jesus' name is the same as serving Jesus, which is the same as serving God, the one who sent Jesus. I mean, Jesus ties it all together, that loving and serving and being loyal and committed and obedient to God means you lower yourself to serve whoever's last. And in this case, he uses a child as that example. See, Jesus tells his disciples that God expects them to be a servant, a lowly, personal servant. We're not talking some head of servants. We're not even talking about that. He's talking about a personal servant that does every, the person's every beck and call. And you serve even children. And then they will achieve this greatness in God's kingdom. That's the glorious promise we have, is that our greatness hasn't got anything to do with down here. I mean, you can be in charge of the children's ministry around here, and I'd appreciate it, but it's not necessarily going to make you great in the eyes of the kingdom here, but it will make you great in the eyes of the kingdom there. And they will meet God's standard of what high rank means. They will meet that by serving this. There's some examples in Scripture, great examples of what it means to be last, to serve and be a lowly servant. Mary, Mary, she kissed and anointed Jesus' feet. Stephen served widows food. He was, a, he was a waiter. 
He was a servant. He brought food to widows. And he was martyred for Christ. Even Jesus washed the nasty, nasty feet of his disciples. Even the disciple that betrayed him. Now talk about last place. In this world, that's last place. But not in God's world. God calls us to be servants to achieve greatness in his kingdom. It's service without fame. And there is a connection between this service and God. John, the apostle John, he writes in his gospel, or he records in his gospel, another time where Jesus says the same thing. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's, where we're at. That's what we're after right there, being honored by God the Father. When we hear these passages, though, and I'm guilty of this too, when we hear these passages, we start kind of tap dancing and rationalizing and, and, and ducking and covering because we're like, well, what exactly does this mean? We ask these questions like, what does it mean to serve like this? Or how low is low enough? How, la how last place do I need to be for it to be enough? These are all the wrong questions. These questions, they smack of trying to earn my salvation. That's not what this is about at all. As a born-again believer, you are saved. But you're changed. And that's what Jesus' point is. A born-again believer, your life belongs to Christ. We are his servants for others to see him. That's what our job is. There's no other reason to leave us here on planet Earth other than to point to Christ, to point others to Christ, to show Christ to them by how we serve them, how we take last place. Our actions, our service, our diminished status show the world that we have another home. <laughs> we have a better situation waiting for us. We have a better life beyond this one. That's why we serve with no problems, no grudges. No holding back. No asking questions like, is this enough? And these postures tell about a Savior who died for them. It tells about a Savior who rose. It shows the world that we have that better place. It shows a Savior who humbled himself. He became last for our sins. So the real questions we need to ask ourselves, am I serving Jesus with a grateful heart? For his sacrifice? Am I grateful for his sacrifice? Do I think my, of myself last? Do I think of myself last? Am I living like a servant or am I seeking recognition in what I'm doing? Do I want some pats on the back and some accolades? I'm not talking about not being thankful for what people do for us, okay? That's not what Jesus is talking about either. He's talking about your own heart motive. Am I, am I living like a servant or am I seeking recognition? Do I want to gain status here? Or there? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. Those are the questions that, that, that get us our frame of mind back together. Now, I'm not talking about making yourself a doormat either. Being humble is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Less often. Being humble, you know how to do that? The best way I've found is spend some time looking in the face of Jesus. Just look at Jesus in your mind, in your prayers, in your quiet times, and think about what he's done for us, what he suffered, 
how much pain he went through, how much humiliation, the hatred they had for him, all because of what he taught. That's how you get humble. So greatness in the kingdom of God serves with the knowledge of a soul set free from sin, and we're eternally secure in heaven. We look at Jesus. So the gospel that saves us changes us, and this is one way it changes us. It, it makes serving the greatest thing you can do. And there are many capacities to do that. But another opportunity arises for Jesus to do a little bit more teaching. And the disciples provide this as well. Look at verses 38 through 41. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, Jesus said, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterward speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. Boy, there's some good promise right there. So John and the disciples, they really don't understand this last place, first place, great serve, and all this thing. So they, they think, oh, let's protect Jesus' reputation. We saw someone out there, Jesus, casting out demons and, and in your name, but they're not of us, so we stopped him. We tried to anyway. That's what they're thinking is protecting Jesus. It's the most funniest thing to me to, to see them trying to protect his reputation and his notoriety and his popularity when being in last place is Jesus' point of his whole ministry. So Jesus sets the record straight. Anyone who can cast out a demon in Jesus' name is of Jesus, pure and simple. Anyone who can really do that, someone who truly performs a miracle like the disciples once did back in Mark 6, promotes the kingdom that Jesus proclaims. Paul expands that when he says in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. See, these people are not charlatans. They're not false disciples. Jesus condones the miracles that they're performing because they're done in his name. And that's the glorious thing about it. And that preaches to the lost. That testifies to the Savior that we've all been saved by. It points to him. And then Jesus even changes it a little bit up. He says, Jesus, he even speaks of those who support followers of Christ by their service. This could be supporting missionaries. It could be supporting anything local community that's, that's pointing to Jesus. That's, our, that's kind of our guiding light when it comes to that stuff. If they even give a glass of water to someone who is of Christ, someone who belongs to Jesus, they're rewarded. They're rewarded. Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of God rests on simple, sacrificial service. It doesn't have to be elaborate. It doesn't have to be glamorous. And God will reward those who do so. That's, that's what he's saying. You know, in the, in the U.S. Air Force, we had uh, some core values, they called them. And one of the core values of the three was service before self. And I have never seen so many <laughs> wide interpretations of what that meant. Duty before self, your duty before me, your duty before your family. I mean, they took it, it went crazy. But I, I knew my Bible, and I knew where that came from. 
That's really scripture, that someone somehow snuck in under and got it into the Air Force core values. Service before self. But in the kingdom, it always means serving in any capacity and looking for those situations to serve in. Regardless of whether you are called to that, if you see an area that needs service, get involved. Help. See if you can help. Paul tells the Colossians, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ in whatever we do. Whatever we do, you're serving God, whether you realize it or not. Sometimes I think we forget about the promises of reward as a Christian. Sometimes we, we've kind of colored it like, well, that's not, that's not supposed to be the motive. And you're right, it's not supposed to be the only motive, but it is a reality. It's a reality that we're going to get rewarded. We talk about jewels in our crowns and you know our rewards. It's a, rea- it's a reality. Scripture teaches that. Jesus saved us to serve others in a way that proclaims the gospel, yet he has promised to reward us when we do that in the next life. Reward based on our service in this life. It's not unspiritual to think about the rewards and think about laying up treasures in heaven, as Jesus says. But we also must be serving in Jesus' name, which is in this passage a lot. Getting Jesus noticed. That's what, mean, that's what it means serving in Jesus' name. It's like everything we do is pointing to Jesus. When you give them some food because they're hungry, Jesus is giving you this. This is because I trust Jesus as my Savior. You, you say and you do those kind of things so they know why you're doing them. You're getting Jesus noticed. Giving him the place that he deserves. And when we raise Jesus up by our acts of service, we are preaching Christ. We are preaching Christ and he will reward us. Because he is our focus, not what I'm doing. Look at what I'm doing. We're not looking for that. So how many times has our actions really been against Jesus that we thought maybe for Jesus? Have we condemned or excluded people because we thought they, they were here for the wrong reasons or we just had the wrong reasons? Have we failed to minister to the lowly, the poor, the sinful, and the hurting because it isn't glamorous? Jesus calls us to do just that. Jesus says it right here in this passage. I will reward those who seek last place. I will reward those who seek last place, who serve everyone. You leave no one out. You know, Mother Teresa understood that. I don't know what you, how you feel about Mother Teresa, but I believe she's a born-again believer. We're going to see her in heaven because she served She was last in everything she did. Could you improve your rewards in heaven? Could you put some more up there? I could. I definitely don't do enough to to put rewards in heaven. But we can. When our hearts are regenerated by the Holy Spirit and we are saved by the gospel, our priorities should change. That does not happen overnight. Just like these disciples, they're struggling with it. They went from who's the greatest to you can't do it because you're not part of us. They got tribal on them. I mean, we get parochial, those kind of things. Our priorities change. Our purpose and our focus become clear when we become a believer in Jesus Christ. Yet we still sometimes (laughs) 
still lose focus. I still lose focus. You're still going to lose some clarity. Sometimes you're going to allow your purpose to get crowded out by worldly pursuits. But Jesus uses life situations to call us back. Things that are happening in our life, I think, are meant, as I've always said, to refine our faith. And if you're, if you're going off on your own thing, it'll pull you back. That's the whole point of it. I think God uses that all the time. He uses our life situations. He reminds us that he saved us. And he left us here to point to him, to tell others about Jesus. So let's think about serving everyone. And in that, becoming great in the kingdom of heaven. So let's pray about, as during our pastoral prayer time, let's pray about our hearts serving Jesus. Think about that. Am I, am I serving Jesus with a pure heart? Ask God to make you last place. Now, that's a hard prayer, to make yourself last place. And let's take our burdens to him, spiritual as well as physical, material, and, and let's take them to him and then leave them there. Because sometimes we want to put them on the throne tell God about them, show them point and everything, and then we want to take them off and take them home with us because we're worried about them. So let's take some time now and pray silently for those things, and then I'll close this out in a minute or so.